6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 45 through 49. Okay, we're uh, in the book of Jeremiah. We're racing rapidly to the end of it. Um, we got as far as chapter 44, end of 44 last time, right? Not knowingly, like you paid attention, right? So, 45. Okay, 45 is a great chapter. It's five verses. That's our kind of chapter. We have... Uh, I just, just sort of to recap, we're going to enter a slightly different phase for Jeremiah shortly, so let's just recap where we've been. Jeremiah wrote prior to the Babylonian captivity. He, he uh, wrote under five kings of Judah. A couple of those were only 90-day wonders. But he was raised up as a prophet during the days of Josiah and um, during a revival. But most of the kings went from bad to worse, and he had the burden of predicting to the people that he was going to go, that the nation was over, that they were going to be made slaves of Babylon under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. And most of what we've read up till now, up until chapter 44, were his various messages during that period. Not in chronological order, but essentially into the days of Jehoiakim or Zedekiah, the two major kings that Nebuchadnezzar had established after the uh, uh, first and second sieges to uh, rule, and he finally had a belly full and just uh, destroyed Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, roughly 587 B.C. And that major event is still honored by the Jews today, and uh, that was wrapped up, if you will. I mean, we got into all of the, the finish of that um, over the last few chapters. We're going to enter a slightly different kind of a period now, and this is appended after um, the other sessions, not necessarily in chronological order, as you'll see shortly, but on a different subject. The subject up till now has essentially been Judah. Nebuchadnezzar had the burden of telling his, presiding over the death of a nation. He had to tell his countrymen that uh, their judgment was coming that they were going to be made slaves in Babylon for 70 years, and it all happened. Not a popular ministry, an agonizing ministry, actually, therefore called the weeping prophet. Now, um, after chapter 44, we have this little five-verse appendage. Bear in mind, Jeremiah is not in chronological order. It's a compilation of his various writings. And there's lots of debate as to what order things go. But as you may recall, his scribe, his amanuensis, his secretary, was Baruch. And Baruch was got, remember, he got himself in some um, trouble a little earlier, but was preserved through that. This chapter 45 is a special, special message to Baruch, the secretary, the, the amanuensis. Baruch was of noble birth. He was a grandson of Ma Maaseah, I think it is. 
who was the governor of Jerusalem under Josiah, the, the good king, some time ago. And um, you find references to him in Second Chronicles 34, for those who want to chase that down for whatever reason. He was a brother, uh, his brother was the chief chamberlain of the court of Zedekiah. So Baruch, while he was professionally, his scribe was apparently of noble birth. Uh, in any case, let's just take a quick look at chapter 45, a five-verse little appendage here. Chapter 45, verse 1, the word of, that Jeremiah the prophet spoke unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the mouth of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying... Now bear in mind, Jehoiakim, when Pharaoh Necho um, first asserted himself, he put Jehoahaz in charge, but only for 90 days, then removed him and put Jehoiakim in charge. He was a bad news character. A major duration of the, uh, of, of the rulership was under Jehoiakim under Jeremiah. Jehoiakim was succeeded by Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, but only for a short time, and he was subsequently replaced by Zedekiah, that placement by Nebuchadnezzar, to refresh your memory on the names. So um, this is the writings here that Baruch did were during the earlier king, Jehoiakim, but that's the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto thee, O Baruch, thou didst say, Woe, unto, woe is me now? For the Lord hath added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. In other words, Baruch is exhausted. He's anxious. He's worried. He's uh, concerned. Verse 4. Thus shalt thou say unto him, The Lord said thus, Behold, that which I have built will I break down, and that which I have planted I will pluck up, even this whole land. And seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not, for behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, but thy life will I give unto thee for a prize in all the places to which thou goest. Strange kind of encouragement. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on this. I don't really plan to here. Bear in mind, Baruch also is faced with it. Remember, he did that one copy that the king burned, and then he had to replace all of that and so forth. He apparently got very discouraged. The word of encouragement to him is out of order. It happens to be right here. There's both a good news and bad news. Baruch is discouraged. The Lord gives him a caution. Um, uh, the caution being here, um, he first of all reminds that God is in charge, and he's going to put up, take down as he will. And we're going to see that exemplified in the next four or five chapters prophetically as far as the nations around Israel is concerned, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. But he points out he's apparently warning Baruch not to seek great things for himself. Now you can argue that that's a generic promise that's applicable to us all at any time, but specifically in the time they live. It's a crisis time. It was not the time to be, um, uh, you know, making long-term plans and uh, so forth. So um, it's a wrong time for personal ambition. You can find parallel passages. Those of you that may remember in the days of Elisha, you remember Gehazi, that was Elisha's servant, and how uh, that servant deceived Naaman to his own advantage, and Elisha scolds him. It's another thing there. Where it's just, it was just not the appropriate time for Gehazi to be looking out for himself. You'll find that in 2 Kings 5, for those of you that want to track that down later. Now, Paul gives a similar passage to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, a similar kind of thing. That was just not the time 
whatever plans they normally would have would be overshadowed by the crisis times in which they live, and that's basically what God is saying to Baruch. But he's also giving him, along with that um, caution or exhortation, a word of encouragement. Uh, he says that his life is secure. Now, that may not sound like much, but in the times he's living with the Babylonian you know, captivity, extant, the city under siege, uh, he's essentially uh, putting Baruch under God's special protection. So that's... Uh, but thy life will I give thee for a prize in all the places to which thou goest. So Baruch does not have to fear for his life, but it's not the time to be concerned with his, you know, his other concerns because it's uh, they're about to encounter the events that we talked about in the last chapter or two, as you recall, where there, where Nebuchadnezzar does succeed, and then they're in effect forced to go to Egypt by those other characters. Uh, so much for chapter forty-five, a short one, and a special message to Baruch. We're now going to move into a chapters 46, 7, 8, and 9. And these four chapters are a group that are a little different than all the ones we have um, looked at so far in that they are not directed against Israel. These four chapters are prophecies given by Jeremiah or through Jeremiah to a group of nations. Now, your Bibles may have this organized, if you look at your notes, as either 9 or 10, depending on how you count, how you count them. There'll be Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, and um, Damascus, which really implies Syria. And then there's two, Kedar and Hazor, and mo the properly they should be separated into two. That gives you a total of 10, but some... Bible study Bibles have them clustered as together as Arabia. Now, Arabia was not a cohesive nation at that time, so that's sort of. But you and I would associate uh, Kedar and Hazor with the tribes that make up uh, Arabia, and the last one is Elam. So there's actually ten nations, and you prophecy buffs always like to be alert when there's ten nations. It's always interesting how there's ten nations. When Moses brought the Israel out of Egypt, they faced ten nations. Okay. Three of them were put down before they crossed the Jordan under Joshua. So Joshua faced seven nations when they conquered Canaan in the, in the book of Joshua. It's interesting how in the book of Revelation, at the end times, the, the Western European nations will be aligned as a confederation of ten. Again, that's again a ten-nation thing. And three of them are put down first, and the dictator takes place. You remember Daniel... Uh, and uh, also Revelation uh, 13 and 17 and such. And we'll talk more about that next time for reasons I'll come to. But the point is, it's always interesting how for some reason there's always ten nations. And it's interesting here that uh, when God speaks to Jeremiah, he seems to pick ten nations to talk to. Even though some of your study Bibles may call it nine, that's because of this, uh, the, these pa the, those two small passages. Now, another point, uh, we think of Jeremiah as a prophet to Israel, and certainly he was, but in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, you may recall that he is a prophet to the nations, plural. And so we're going to see that here. Uh, uh, he, Jeremiah had a worldview. He served under five kings of Judah and during four different kings of Egypt and two different kings of Babylon, if you recognize that Nebuchadnezzar inherited the kingdom before his father died during the first siege. I'll come back to that in a little bit. So one of the messages, so to give you a preview, 
is to recognize that the Bible makes emphasis that God is the God of all nations, and his demands of holiness apply to all. So even though the Bible is heavily uh, expansive on his peculiar relationship with the nation Israel, historically, that he is a God of all nations, and he asserts himself as such, particularly as we'll see shortly. So let's jump into chapter 46, and chapter 46 is essentially, in its entirety, on Egypt. So chapter 46 is a prophecy against Egypt, but it's in, there are two different prophecies. The first, the verses 2 through 12, have to do with one particular um, focus on Israel. That'll turn out to be Pharaoh Necho, I'll show you shortly. And then the second, the rest of the chapter, is another prophecy against Egypt, but it has to do with the events after the fall of Jerusalem, when the Babylon finally takes full charge. This passage is going to deal with Pharaoh Necho's invasion against the king of Babylon. Uh, Egypt is a powerful uh, nation at the time. Babylon is on the rise. Pharaoh Necho um, is the guy that engages in a battle at Megiddo. We all know of Megiddo because of the prophecy interest. Megiddo here, though, is the location where Pharaoh Necho's uh, slays King Josiah, the good king, and of course that was a real shock to Israel, about 609 B.C., maybe a little earlier. Um, he placed Jeho Jehoiaz on the throne. Um, three months later, removes him and places uh, and imprisons him at Riblah. Remember, the Babylonians operated out of Riblah. It seems Riblah, for whatever reasons, turns out to be a natural capital for these guys. Jehoiakim is on char in charge. The fourth year that Jehoiakim is in charge is when the Battle of Karshemesh takes place. Karshemesh is uh, to the north. And that is one of the most important battles in world history, because it was at the Battle of Karshemesh that Pharaoh Necho gets defeated by a young general in charge of the Babylonian army, Gabonim and Nebuchadnezzar. And that uh, uh, battle it alters the, the subsequent course of history uh, in, the, in the world, actually, because that's, that's where Pharaoh Necho, from that time on, Egypt is contained, and Babylon is on the rise. And um, the um, uh, many scholars, that, that blocks Egypt and Babylon's on the rise, and many scholars feel that that battle, in effect, triggers a period of time that biblical scholars like to call the times of the Gentiles. Because from that day until uh, June of 67 on, uh, during that whole period of time, um, there's Gentile dominion um, in that part of the country. And that was a, a reference that Christ makes in the in the Gospels, but if you want to figure out when do the times the Gentiles really start, some people visualize it as to, as starting from the fall of Jerusalem when, after Christ's crucifixion. As a practical matter, it actually starts if you understand Daniel, the days of Nebuchadnezzar. If you say when did that start, some people feel at the Battle of Karshemesh. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's father Nabopolassar was the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho at Karshemesh drives him back to Egypt, on the way home lays siege to Jerusalem. That's the first of three sieges by Nebuchadnezzar. And that uh, is, it was during that siege that Nebuchadnezzar finds out his father died. He is now the king of Babylon. So he places uh, Jehoiakim in subjection back on the throne and goes home to take over the empire. It's some years later that uh, 
Under Jehoiakim, he doesn't listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah points out that Nebuchadnezzar is destined by God to rule and to subjugate Judah. Jehoiakim doesn't buy that, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has his allies, Moab, Ammon, and others, join in to lay a second siege, to and they replace Jehoiakim with Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, as we have reviewed, is a weak king. He is sort of pro-Jeremiah, but doesn't have the strength to enforce it. His first string is very pro-Egypt, continues to create problems, where Nebuchadnezzar finally has a belly full of all this, lays the third siege a couple of years, and um, when they finally succeed, Jerusalem falls, and that destroys the city, and they're all taken captive. Daniel is taken captive, in the Daniel and Ezekiel both, in the first siege, uh, everybody else in the third siege, and uh, and we've talked about the uh, the 19-year spread between those two and, and this impact on Israel today. We'll talk more about that before we're all through. That's a quick summary. The, the first 12 verses focus on Pharaoh Necho. It's a prophecy of Jeremiah against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Let's jump in. Uh, Jeremiah 46, verse 1, of the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, who was by the river Euphrates in Karshemesh, which Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, again, Kadrezer is probably the proper pronunciation. And your transliteration probably has it that way. We're so used to Daniel, where it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's the same guy. And I'll, rather than keep correcting, I'll just use the old, the thing we're familiar with. Uh, anyway, king of Babylon smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeh Josiah, the king of Judah, and uh, order the buckler of the shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses, get up, ye horsemen, and stand forth with your helmets. Polish the spears and put on the coats of mail. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned away back? And their mighty ones are beaten down and are fled apace. Look not back, for fear was round about, saith the Lord. Let not the swift flee away, nor the mighty men escape. They shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. And again, that's a reference to the Babylonian strength servicing. These are, in effect, taunts of Jeremiah against Egypt. Bear in mind, under Jehoiakim, they were pro-Egypt. Judah was, the leadership was. And Jeremiah is pointing out they're going to lose, that Jeremiah is called by God to win, in effect. Verse 7, Who is this that cometh up like a flood, whose waters are moved like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he saith, I will go up, and I will cover the earth. I will destroy the city and the absence of it. Come up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots. Let the mighty men come forth. Cush and put that handle the shield. Cush and put are Ethiopia and Libya, as we would think of them. And they're, in effect, allies of Egypt, if you will. That handle the shield and ludum and, and uh, that handle the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries, and the sword shall devour, it shall be filled to the full, and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead, and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured." The nations have heard of thy shame, and thy cry hath filled the land, for the mighty man hath stumbled against the mighty, and both are fallen, and they're fallen both together. Jeremiah's poetic way of describing the futility of Egypt going against Babylon, their ultimate destruction, and almost a, a taunt that they're going to go down. While this is directed at Egypt, you can also, if you remember the history, Jeremiah is trying to convince, had tried to convince uh, Jehoiakim not to make an alliance with Egypt because Egypt was going to lose. 
couple other small points. We notice here in verse um, 11 about the medicines, a small historical point. Apparently, the field of medicine was introduced to Europe from Egypt and India. And it's intriguing that we find this reference to their medicinal arts here in verse 11. Not, not to disparage them, but they're going to be of no avail for the problems they have. That's basically the gist of that. I have a couple other points to make, but let's finish the chapter first. Verse 13 on, unless you're catching this, it's not obvious. It, most scholars believe this is a separate prophecy, again against Egypt, but referring to a different time. And uh, let's just jump into this and, and uh, see what, uh, what's happening here. Verse 13. The word of the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, should come and smite the land of Egypt. Declare ye in Egypt, and publish in Migdal, and publish in Memphis, and in Tophanes, and say, and say, Stand fast, prepare, for the sword shall devour round about thee. You notice here the prophecy is aimed at Egypt's heartland. Not a conflict where Pharaoh Necho and the Babylonians come together, which was fulfilled in most scholars' eyes at Karshemesh. This is subsequent. This is after the fall of Jerusalem. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar focuses on Egypt. And as you remember from the last couple of chapters, when um, Jeremiah and Baruch and the gang are forced by this rebel group to go to Egypt, thinking they'd be safe there, he says, hey, no, to no avail. That and get, and Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even get to Egypt. And this gets fulfilled. Gee, I've forgotten the dating, but I think it's uh, several years after the fall of Jerusalem. And that's what most scholars believe this passage is making reference to. And the cities here, of course, are the cities we reviewed before, yeah, pretty much in Egypt. Going on, verse 15, Why are the valiant men swept away? They stood not, because the Lord did drive them. He made many to fall, yea, one fell upon another. And they said, Arise, let us go again to our people and to the land of our nativity uh, from the oppressing sword. They did cry there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He hath passed the time appointed. As I live, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely like Tabor among the mountains, like Carmel by the sea, so shall he come. I want to cover something at the end, um, in case I get pressed for time and don't. I want to take us, if we can find the time, of Daniel 4 and Daniel 10, after this passage, to, show, to, to make uh, some broader points vis-a-vis uh, that God is the God of the nations. We always think of him in, in, in um, Old Testament or Israeli or New Testament gospel terms. There's a much broader perception that's, that's especially dramatized in both Daniel 4 and 10. So I'll try to get at that, but I think the time to do is after we've been through all of these prophecies and then, then to summarize them. Verse 19, um, O thou daughter dwelling in Egypt, furnish thyself to go into captivity. For Memphis shall be waste and desolate without an inhabitant. Egypt is like a very fair heifer, but destruction cometh, it cometh out of the north. And again, from their fertile crescent geography, you have to realize that Babylon, even though it's way to the east, really attacks from the north because of the crescent aspects of the geography there. Verse 21. Also her hired men are in the midst of her like fatted bullocks, and they also turned back and are fled away together. They did not stand because the day of their calamity was come upon them and the time of their judgment. The voice of it shall go like a serpent. And by the way, that's interesting because that was the serpent was the on their Egyptian banners, etc. So there's a there's by the way, something I'm sparing you too. Um sometimes I'll go through all these notes from the commentators and they'll point out the wordplay. 
in the English, we missed that. Often through these, there's places where in the Hebrew, there's puns and play on the words, alliteration or puns or other things. Uh, because we've got a lengthy passage and I just want to zip through it. When I bring that up, I don't know what you do with that information. It's just to just be aware of the fact we are dealing with a translation. And so the, the subtleties, the, the, the uh, sometimes sarcasm, sometimes the play on words is missing uh, in the English. Okay, before uh, they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like hewers of wood. By the way, the Babylonians did use battle axes, and in those days it was bizarre and different and a surprise. We think of them in medieval terms that were common, but bear in mind this goes back six, six centuries before Christ. So this, uh, the idea of a battle axe was a peculiar weapon that the Babylonians introduced, and it was a, a um, aspect of awe to come across, come against that. They're, you know, they're basically archers in those days, and uh, uh, battle axes were a little bizarre. Anyway, in verse 23, and they, they shall cut down her forest, saith the Lord, though it not, cannot be searched, because they are more than the grasshoppers. They are innumerable. And again, grasshoppers were an idiom of the, you know, of the, of the uh, plague, or they're without number. They're just like a swarm, if you will. Verse 24, the daughter of Egypt shall be confounded. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saith, Behold, I will punish the multitude of Noah and Pharaoh in Egypt and their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and all those who trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants. And afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, saith the Lord. But fear not, O servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save thee from afar off and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be in it, rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Yet future, obviously. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven thee. Really? Isn't that interesting? Where has the Lord driven Israel? Everywhere. Interesting. I wonder what that means. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.